Purify our conscience, Almighty God, by your daily visitation, that your Son, Jesus Christ, at his coming, may find in us a mansion prepared for himself, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the fourth Sunday of Advent, December the 18th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, I appreciate it. We had a, a good week this week, kind of a quieter week than, than we've had the last little bit, um, but, it, but it was good. Um, gotten some work done, gotten some preparation done for the for the ongoing daily podcast. I've been working on Matthew and his genealogy and uh, the women in that genealogy, particularly this week, and so it's been good. I've been able to do a lot of the things that in my life that I enjoy doing, which is going to the gym. <laughs> um, but I haven't, however, we haven't been walking at all this week. We, we've just had too much kind of going on during the week. It's been a good week, though, sort of, you know, preparing ourselves for uh, for Christmas to greet our Savior again, um, but to do so, you know, with heavy hearts. Um, so we, we're fortunate, though, that uh, we're going to be able to go to Knoxville for a couple of days for Christmas and uh, help um, Suzanne's sister and her husband, who are head of the hospitality commission, committee at their church, First Baptist Knoxville, and so um, they're going to do a, a luncheon for people who don't have family in town on Christmas Day. And so I've been making cookies, and I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cookies, uh, in preparation for that. So and looking forward to going over there and helping them and being with them for a couple of days. So so anyway, that's exciting, um, but nothing particularly, you know. Uh, Great going on. We're looking forward to going out with some friends uh, and doing some things over the next few days. And so it's just been good. I hope that you're having a blessed uh, Advent season as well and that, that the Lord is, is calling you closer and closer to himself in, in every single way. Uh, we are a week exactly away from Christmas. And so um, we're going to look today at uh, Joseph pretty much is kind of what we're going to focus on in the gospel today with the, the angel of the Lord has to speak to Joseph uh, concerning his plans about Mary. And so um, the question, I guess, that I've got that, that, that will kind of hang over everything is, are you willing and able to let the Lord upset your plans? Are you willing and able to allow him to do what it is he wants to do? Or are you going to persevere in doing what you want to do? So do, do we have the ability to, to step back and say, I'm going to listen to God in this? Um, do, do we get so consumed with the need to do something that we no longer are waiting on him, which is what this whole season is about, is waiting on the Lord? Because when he does things, he does it in his own way, in his own time. And, and sometimes us jumping in the middle of that changes everything and changes the timing. Now, from God's perspective, it doesn't change anything. Uh, because he knows all these things in advance. One of the things that I was listening to actually just today um, was a podcast on that. So the, uh, in, in the um, Jewish world, there's a weekly uh, reading from the Torah that's prescribed, and it's, it's the same every year. You read through the entire Torah during the course of the year. So it's the five books of Moses. And so those are called Parsha. So uh, I listened to a podcast called Into the Verse by Aleph A-L-A-P-H, Beit, uh, B-E-T-A. I listened to that every week uh, into the verse. And so they were talking this time about that that one of the medieval commentaries, Rashi, 
uh, said something that was uncomfortable for the person commenting on it, and that is, is that he said that, that Joseph actually needed to be rebuked when he asked the baker to um, remember him before Pharaoh to get him out of prison. And the reality is is that, that what, what Rashi's getting at is, is that, that he put his trust, he, Joseph, put his trust in Pharaoh rather than the Lord. And that God was going to do something, but it was going to be him doing it and not Pharaoh. So that's the the backdrop for this, is, is that kind of idea of are we able to wait upon the Lord, or if we see what we believe to be an opportunity to get somebody in, in a position of power or whatever to do something on our behalf, do we... Do we do that, or do we wait, and do we listen to the Lord to see if that's what He would have us do? And so that's what we see today in the first lesson, which is Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, "'Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, "'I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test.'" So who is this Ahaz, and what's the context for this this, uh, meeting that Isaiah has with Ahaz here? So if you want to know who Ahaz is, you've got to go to um, 2 Kings 16. So he becomes king. This is prior to the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he, however, is in the south. He's in Judah. So in other words, he's where Jerusalem is. So, and what we're told is, is that he was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, which means he was apostate. And here's how bad it was. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, what he's saying, he filled the land with his apostasy because he filled the land with worship of false gods. And and not only that, ultimately, he is so enamored of um, a worship altar that he sees in Syria that he then goes back, he, he makes a model of it or has a model made, gives it to the priest at the time, the high priest, and is told to build a new altar that way and to dismantle the altars that already existed, the altars to Yahweh. So that's, that's how horrible this guy is. He gives instructions for worship. He gives instructions for who to worship and how to worship, and he dismantles the altars of Yahweh, but but instead he, it it goes back to the old saying: it, it's not that you know if if you won't, it's not that you don't worship anything; it's that you worship everything. So if you don't worship Yahweh, then the chances that you will worship anything increase dramatically, and so that's exactly what happens here because the, the, you don't know. You know, I, I've got a friend who takes lots and lots of supplements every single day. And he and I have had this conversation a million times. He takes so many that he's not even sure whether any given thing does any good or not. And that's kind of Ahaz's approach to worship here. I'm hedging my bets all over the place. And so now comes Isaiah to give him an opportunity to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord wants to prove himself to him in a way that would call him back to him, but he's got his own plan. And that's what's going on. That's the reason he says, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. It's not that he's humble. 
It's not that he's taken into consideration, don't tempt the Lord your God. No, it has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is he's intent on doing what he wants to do. He thinks he has a plan that is a surefire success. Well, what's the plan for? Well, here it is. So what's happened at this point in time is the northern kingdom of Judah or of Israel or Ephraim, however you want to call whatever you want to call it, because it gets called all kinds of things. But the, it entered into uh, a treaty with the nation of Syria, which is right next door, and they decided to go up against Jerusalem to destroy it. I mean, this is, these are Jews fighting against Jews, but with an alliance with the Syrians. And so they're, they're not able to do it. But he, he, Ahaz, is so concerned about this threat that he goes and makes a pact with the uh, king of Assyria, who ends up ultimately taking down Israel and sending those ten tribes into exile, those lost tribes that we know them as. And so he is concerned about the possibility that he's going to be overrun by Syria and Israel, and so he makes a deal with the king of Assyria. And in the process, what he does is he sends a lot of the silver and the gold and the other things out of the temple as a gift or a bribe to the king of Assyria in order that he would enter into this alliance with him to defeat the Israel-Assyrian alliance. So we have Assyria now aligned with Judah and, and Syria and Israel aligned with one another. And what we get then is Isaiah coming and, and saying, God's got a plan. He has a plan here. And he says, I won't ask for this sign. I won't put the Lord to the test. And he said, he, Isaiah, the Lord actually said, Here then, O house of David, not just addressing Ahaz, but, but all of the house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Because the Lord's going to take the initiative and give a sign. He, he's, if he's not going to ask for it, the Lord's going to name the tune. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what is this sign, and, and what does it have to do with us? Because we know that it does. We're going to read it in a minute in Matthew's Gospel. So it, a lot of commentarists will say, well, th this was about something totally different. And it was. It, there's a short-term horizon for the fulfillment of the prophecy, but there's a longer, fuller-term fulfillment of the prophecy, and it has to do with why he's addressing the house of David not just Ahaz. He is addressing Ahaz, but he's addressing the house of David, which is a metonymy for Israel, for the people of God. And so there's going to be a short-term fulfillment of this prophecy. And what he's saying is, is that, that it, it's just going to be a little while. It's not going to take long until the Syrian king and the Israelite king are gone. Those kingdoms will be gone, he says, in a very short time. Here's how short a time it will be. That, that this virgin can also be translated as young girl. So she's going to have a child, and then this, that child will still be a child before he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land of whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this child is not even going to, to reach maturity. 
prior to that. Now, the child is a special child. He's going to eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. In other words, at a very young age, he will know these, these things between good and evil. He will understand those distinctions, and not only will he know them, he'll know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So he's going to be a special kind of child. And that's what we see when we see Jesus arguing with the priests in the temple when he's 12, right? So, so the age of maturity would be 13. That's when they had the bar mitzvah. And that's the point of the bar mitzvah is to show that I can read the law for myself in Hebrew. And because I can do that, then I am now responsible for that knowledge, for what I do with the knowledge that's contained in the Torah. And so you read a Torah portion aloud in the synagogue in front of a minyan, a, a, a group of leadership of men that, that now you are, are able to take your place there and count as one of the men who understand the law. And so that what Isaiah is saying here is God's saying this one is going to be a different kind of one while he is still eating curds and honey, while he's still eating, essentially, we, maybe we're in our situation here in America in, in the 21st century, you would say before the child is really done eating soft cereal, He's going to know the difference. But, um, but then he goes on to say, but even before that, these two kings are going to be overthrown. The thing that you fear the most, Ahaz, is going to be not even something to fear in the not-too-distant future. Now, the, the ultimate fulfillment of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son is obviously found in our gospel today. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So remember again, Christ is not his last name. <laughs> it means the anointed one. So Jesus the Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that means they're engaged. But, but an engagement was an irrevocable bond. There was, there, were, there was prices agreed upon for the bride's dowry and then what the, the groom would do as well. And so when you're betrothed to someone, it's the same as, same legally, as being married to that person. So when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and that's referring to sex, she was still a virgin. She had still not had sex with Joseph. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we get the fullness of that story over in Luke's gospel when we see the angel of the Lord appearing to her and explaining to her how this is going to happen, and then it does. And so here, though, Matthew gives us this, this abbreviated version of this, and it, which, which tends to make me believe that Luke's gospel probably preceded Matthew's gospel, and so we know what happened there. But, but then Luke gives other details that are different as well. Not different, but it, it expanded on certain things. And so she's found to be with child from, from the Holy Spirit after she got a revelation from an angel how this was going to happen. And then her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Well, now he had options. He had two options. He could make a public spectacle of Mary, accuse her of, a, of adultery, because it would have been adultery, and, and certainly sexual immorality before the entire congregation, but instead, he's basically going to leave this as it is, and speculation could run rampant that he was actually the father 
of this child and that he had acted improperly towards her when he chooses to do it quietly and he was unwilling to put her to shame he could just put her away and then move on and and then but the 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 shame would kind of fall on him so he wasn't willing to expose her in order to do this he was a good man he was a very good man we don't know whether what well, we do know that he didn't believe mary's story he did not believe it and how do we know that is because he was going to put her away he knew he wasn't the father and so one of the things that I've said time and time again are the first two people that we are absolutely certain don't believe in virgin births are Joseph and Mary. Because Mary asked the question, how can such things be, seeing that I'm a virgin? And then she gets sort of an explanation, and then it happens. And, and then Joseph, we know, doesn't believe that, that in virgin births because he's willing here to put her away quietly. But... As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. So he gets a vision in a dream of an angel who tells him not to fear Taking Mary as his wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is pretty amazing, right? He believes. He believes that this dream is real. In spite of the fact that he doesn't believe in virgin births until this moment, he goes on in, in faith and trust that God has a plan and that that plan is a good plan, and that he'll go ahead and do this thing even though he doesn't understand it, in the same way that Mary did. I don't understand these things, but deep be it done to me according to your will. And, and that sometimes is the only thing that we can do. It's our, it's our only position. Sometimes it's literally the only position, and sometimes it's what God wants us to do. And so he calls us to say, do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? Or do you have faith in this politician or that whatever or, or, or in your ability to do something? And here, Joseph has got to act in faith, and he does. Is a distinction between him and Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who, who in the temple doesn't believe these things, even though an angel is standing before him in the temple, in the holy place, telling him these things, he still doubts in such a way that, that he uh, infuriates the angel, the archangel, actually. In the same way, God says in that first passage we read today from Isaiah, how is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And how do we weary him? By not believing him, by not trusting him. By trusting too much in the devices and desires of our own hearts, as the uh, collect for um, the daily prayer collect reads for the general thanksgiving, we've trusted too much in the devices and desires of our own hearts. And, and too often that describes what we do. We want what we want, and so we'll do what, we, what it takes to get it. You know, we see this over and over and over again. People want influence. They want power. They want money. They want whatever, and it leads them to do things that they would otherwise not have done. And sometimes God calls us to be still and to wait for him to act, 
Sometimes he calls us to go forward. The distinction, for instance, between what happens at the Red Sea and what happens at the Jordan River at the Red Sea, they're they're called to wait, and Moses is just going to stretch out his staff, and then God's going to do the work of rolling back the water. After they've been disobedient and and failed to enter the land in the wilderness because of fear of the giants in the land, now when they get to the Jordan River, what do they have to do? They have to actually go into the water first. They have to actually take action, but it's an action God calls them to take. He doesn't do things the same way all the time. We need to always be listening to him. You can't just assume because this worked in the past, this is going to work in the future, and this is the way God's going to do things. No, that's not the way it is, and that's the proof of that is Jesus. When he comes into our world, takes on flesh, and becomes as one of us, in order then that he would save us. And so he, there are similarities frequently in the ways that he works, but, but they're not always the same. And we need to be quiet and be still and ask him what he would have us do in any given circumstance. And so here, after the name is given, Matthew gives us, again, he goes back to Isaiah 7, and he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so he's pointing back to that as the, that's this as the ultimate fulfillment of that previous word given to King Ahaz. Now, Matthew doesn't quote the rest of that passage, which has an immediate application for Ahaz concerning the, the kingdoms of Israel and Syria. Matthew doesn't go there because he's saying that was already fulfilled. This is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophetic word, and it's going to be in this one called Jesus. And so Emmanuel is God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what he's saying there was he knew her not until she had given birth. That means that she remained a virgin during, that, during her pregnancy, so that when she had the child, she was indeed still a virgin. I'm not getting into the, to the rest of this thing about the perpetual virginity of Mary that's believed by Roman Catholics and others. Um, there's not a requirement for that. <laughs> um, I, I don't have to believe that. It's not necessary for me to believe that Mary continued as a virgin. It, it's a very strange thing, and in some ways, um, that we know so little about Mary. It's so odd to me, when you think about it, how important she is in God's plan of redemption and salvation for the world, and yet we know almost nothing about her. We just know that, that she was engaged to a, a man named Joseph, and she had a cousin named Elizabeth who was the wife of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And that's roughly the entirety of what we actually do know about Mary. We know she was there at the crucifixion, but we don't know much about this woman. We know that what we do know about her, though, is she's a woman who believed God and took him at his word and said whatever that might mean, let it be done in my life. Let the chips fall where they may. And so she submitted herself to the will of God, even though it didn't make sense to her, and even though it wasn't according to her plan, it disrupted everything. And then ultimately she becomes a woman who is, uh, who is misspoken of down the centuries 
right from the beginning as a woman who probably had slept with a Roman soldier, and that's actually who the father of this child is. But she and Joseph knew better because an angel appeared to them, her in person, Joseph in the dream. But they trusted the Lord, and they did what was according to his plan rather than according to their plans. It upset everything that they had planned and hoped for, and yet at the same time, they recognized that it was the will of God, and so they submitted themselves to the will of God and did as he said in a way that the king, wicked king Ahaz would not do. He wasn't listened to the Lord, didn't want to hear from the Lord because he already had a plan, and he would not be deterred from carrying out that plan, which was the alliance with the king of Assyria. And, and so we need to always be open to the idea and the, the truth, which is God always has a better plan than anything we could conceive on our own. And the proof of that is Jesus. The proof of that is the incarnation. And the proof of that is the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the acknowledgement that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We have to count on those things, and when we do, when we ponder those things, then we can begin to see, Lord, I have no earthly idea how anything actually works and how it should work, but I do know that I trust you, and I'm positive you have a plan that I would never think of. In in the Romans passage, just the beginning of the of the book of Romans, Paul's letter, um, chapter one, verses one to seven, he's he's introducing himself to the Romans who he has not met. He hasn't been there. He says, "Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle." He said, "If if anybody ever knew that God had a plan that didn't fit with your own plans, it was definitely Paul. He's on the way to Damascus to go and persecute the church there." for believing falsely in his mind that Jesus was the Christ and he was the Messiah, he was resurrected from the dead, and he is the the Savior of all. Paul's furious about that. He believes this is the greatest lie ever perpetrated on the Jewish people, and so he's there to persecute them, and along the way, he has his own encounter with Christ as he struck down, down blind on the road and then asked, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And the voice from heaven says, I'm Jesus. And it changed everything for Paul. And he was willing to let God redirect his entire life. He was willing to give up everything that he believed and everything that he held dear in order to receive the great deliverance of God. It's not a do-it-yourself thing, Paul saw. It's a Jesus-did-it thing. My righteousness, he says, is a filthy rags when I compare it to Jesus. And so Paul was willing to, to do whatever was required, include suffering greatly for the proclamation of Jesus. And he says, I was called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent with a message. And what is that message? He says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. I'm set apart from everything else in order to proclaim the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, you know, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. And how do we know that? Well, we know it because he is the only man in history who has been resurrected from the dead to life everlasting. 
So we, we know that according to the flesh, he says, he was descended from David, and we know that because that's where the family was, was in the city of David in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Why are they there? Because the, the emperor declared a census and required people to travel back to their ancestral home, and Joseph was a descendant of the line of David. And so they had to go to Bethlehem. That's exactly what Luke tells us. So he's descended of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. So Paul says, look, this is the thing. I have one message. I have a very, very simple message. That's Jesus Christ. Everything I have comes through him. I'm set apart to declare him. And why and what is it that I'm I'm declared? I'm declaring that he is resurrected from the dead, that he is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, the only Son of God. Why? Why? to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't given specific things to do, right? I mean, we're to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that was commanded and to baptize them. We're, that, it's a very simple thing. So, so when we are about doing the mission of God, then we can expect that he'll be with us because he said he would be even to the end of the age. So we need to be about God's work in God's way, and that's different wherever we go. So when we try and systematize the way that we reach people for the gospel, frequently that's not going to work. And so what you see and have seen for the last 30 years is copycats. Well, I'll do what he did because that's what what worked. Well, pragmatism is not the order of the day for the church. No, the church moves when God says move, in the way God says move. And then we'll see apostolic success. That's why Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles, even though he was probably the most um, well-versed and well-received in Jewish circles of all those who were called to Jesus. But he sent instead to the Gentiles to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the Old Testament. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, but, but we have to be obedient. We, have to, we need the obedience of faith. That means we're trusting God in all things, and, and we leave the results to him. We move when he says move. We move how he says to move. We don't take matters into our own hands. No, we trust in him that in the fullness of time things will come. And, and I'm guilty of this so much it's unbelievable. I've been guilty of it a million times in my life. Uh, there, there are so many times when, when I just knew the right thing to do um, without even asking the Lord. And, and it always turned out badly. It's the honest truth. It always turned out badly. Um, we're to wait on him. And sometimes we delay our answer because we refuse to wait. And so how does Paul close this opening to his epistle? He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints— That's you. If you're listening today, that's who you are. You're loved by God 
and you were called to be his saints. He loved you so much that he sent his son into the world, that the world might be saved through him. Not that the world would be condemned, but salvation. And he chose you to hear his voice, to hear that truth, to know it deep in your soul, and to wait for that final deliverance. And how does he say it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm encouraging you today to take this week to wait well, to cease from any activity that's not actually required that you take, and to wait for Jesus, to wait to hear God's voice, to learn to discipline yourself, to wait, even when the waiting gets uncomfortable, but to wait on him because his plan is always the best and he has plans for hope and a future to bless you, to bless you. In order that you might be a blessing to others, you are called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. You're called to proclaim his excellencies in every single way. And it is our joy to do that. But we need to learn to wait. Wait. 